The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right. So good morning. Is the volume okay? All right. So today is the third in a three-part series. Don't worry if you weren't here for the other two. Um, that are related to this simple verse from the Dhammapada. Doing no evil, engaging in what's skillful, and purifying one's mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So we'll start with a little review and overview. These qualities of doing no evil and engaging in what's skillful and purifying the mind are all about what I've been calling beautifying the mind. You know, making the mind more beautiful, bringing out the beautiful qualities of the heart. And we've talked up to now about generosity and ethical behavior and goodwill. And I said in the very first talk that we might not be used to seeing these qualities in ourselves. And so one thing that we develop as we do this practice is this ability to actually see ourselves as having some of these beautiful qualities. We often tend to, at least in this culture, minimize our strengths, minimize you know, our good qualities because we don't want to, I don't know, we don't want to be boasting or something. But um, the result of that, the long-term result, can be that we just don't see those anymore. We don't think of ourselves that way. And we do all have this beauty. You might be interested to know that actually in this tradition we're encouraged explicitly to reflect upon our beautiful qualities. There's a list of six skillful reflections that we should do, and they include generosity and ethical behavior as two of them. And the intention behind this recollection is actually to uplift the mind. So we should especially be thinking about our good qualities at times when we're feeling down or doubtful in some way. One time, uh, Joseph Goldstein, who is a very well-known teacher in this tradition, he was practicing in Asia, and he was having kind of a dry patch in his meditation. And his teacher said, oh, Joseph, you should reflect on your sila, you know, on your ethics. And he was so attuned to thinking negatively about himself that he immediately thought, oh no, what I do now? <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to think about my virtue, my ethics. What, where have I been failing? But later he realized that his teacher was totally serious. You know, he was, he was trying to help Joseph. He was saying, why don't you reflect on your good qualities? Then you'll be uplifted and, and feel better. <laughs> and in fact, you know, he knew very well that Joseph's sila must be quite excellent for him to be there, f- having found a teacher, practicing. It's got to be good. So in the same way, here we are, practicing. We've all just meditated together that's really good. And there is, in fact, a further benefit to developing the good states of mind that goes beyond what could be called worldly good deeds and worldly good thoughts. So the best fruit, actually, of developing the mind by behaving in skillful ways is to gain the ability to further develop the mind through meditation. So we'll talk about that today. We'll talk about meditative development Meditative development is also called bhavana, bhavana, and 
the three teachings that we've worked on on these three weeks are sometimes grouped together in a set called Dana Sila Bhavana. You know, those are the three kind of key trainings that one does in order to find the path and to further develop the path. And actually up to now, I haven't quite divided them completely into those categories. We've already included some of what's traditionally part of bhavana, which is metta practice. We talked about that last time, but the meditative uh, development of metta is part of bhavana. And so today we're going to go on to more of the meditative development because there's more to that than Brahma-vihara practices. So today I'd like to kind of structure the talk around two interweaving themes, happiness and meditative development, because actually these go hand in hand. And I want to kind of show how that's true. People everywhere basically want to be happy. It's a natural desire of the human heart, and it's a wholesome desire. But often, uh, people don't know how to go about attaining a lasting form of happiness. So we may spend time doing things that lead to limited forms of happiness, or even that you know sort of don't lead in that direction at all. That can happen. So one way to view the path is actually as a deepening of both our actual happiness and our capacity for happiness. So I like this in that, you know, meditation is actually a a very important factor in that. Someone called it, um, I like this word, someone called it a game-changing element (laughs) to do meditation. And that it it opens our, our heart and our mind to whole new capacities for happiness that we didn't have before or we weren't aware of before. And so... Uh, Therefore, we can become even happier by opening that new capacity. So we'll talk about the deeper forms of meditative development, as well as the teaching that is unique to the Buddha, which is the possibility of completely ending suffering, ending the causes of any kind of distress that we go through. So the kind of the structure for today we, we captured in the trio, serenity, insight, and peace. Most people grow up knowing one kind of happiness. They know a common kind of happiness, which is the happiness of sense pleasure. So things like a good meal, a warm bed, a pretty sunset, the caress of our lover, these kinds of things. And the Buddha acknowledged that this kind of happiness exists, and he definitely did not say that it was inherently bad. But he did say that it was inherently limited. And, you know, we can see this for ourselves, right? Is that how long do any of these sense pleasures really last? And in addition, they all take some kind of effort, sometimes a lot of effort, (laughs) to gain some of them. And so um, that's part of the limitation. It's part of the limitation. So the, actually, the, we haven't really talked about that in great deal, detail. The first two talks that we had were about a different type of happiness, actually a higher form of happiness that could be called the happiness of merit. It's kind of a stilted term a little bit. We don't often use that word in English. But it's, you know, it's the, the happiness that comes from uh, doing good things for ourselves and other people. So when we give something, the mind settles and it feels peaceful. There's that nice feeling of being generous. And when we wish well and we experience the good feelings of unselfish love, 
then our heart kind of warms and softens. We can feel that directly as a kind of happiness. And I think it's obvious when we pay attention that this kind of happiness is somehow deeper than, say, a piece of chocolate cake. Yeah, it's a different thing. And another way to to see that is thinking forward. You know, think about when you're going to be dying someday and looking back on your life. What are you going to feel better about on your deathbed? Having had all those great Indian meals (laughs) or having supported your child's education or given donations to a spiritual teacher or having served as a volunteer. You know, these things, these happiness of good karma, in a way, is a deeper form. That's what we're going to remember. So if all of that sounds good, consider that the Buddha pointed out that there are even deeper forms of happiness that can be then can be achieved through the generation of good karma. So uh, the happiness of concentration, the happiness of insight, and the happiness of peace. And these come about through meditation. Of course, you know, other schools of meditation teach, I don't want to say that's the part that's unique to the Buddha. There were, everyone knew even before his time that certain deeper kinds of happiness can be developed through meditation. So it's worth looking at how meditation comes about in the first place. You know, how do we get to the point where we can develop meditation And how does it develop once we start doing it? So one of the basis, one of the bases for meditation is an idea called seclusion. You know, there are conditions for meditation. It's, It's a conditioned phenomena to be able to do that. And so we can talk about the key ones. One of them is what's called seclusion or viveka. And the Buddha often exhorted people to go to the roots of trees or to empty huts and meditate. Now, why did he say it that way? Um, it's because physical seclusion in a quiet and uncrowded place is supportive for the development of the mind in this way. Also, physical simplicity of the setting helps. Not a lot of clutter and generally a clean kind of space to sit in. And this physical dimension is important, especially in the beginning. So if you meditate at home, for example, it's worth paying attention to the place that you meditate, you know, and making sure that it's um, relatively free of other stuff, that it's not a place where you do busy activities otherwise, you know, meditating at your computer desk might not be the best option. Um, A place that fosters seclusion in some way. Of course, we don't want to obsess about this too much, you know, people can... Um, we can begin to believe that certain conditions are required for us to be able to meditate, like it has to be this way or that way. And generally that way of thinking uh, won't lead to the best results in the long run because we'll be tying our meditation to certain specific conditions. But definitely physical solution seclusion is worthwhile. But the deeper forms of seclusion that we're aiming for are actually internal. And I think we can see this quite easily, even if we've physically removed ourselves from the bustle of life and our responsibilities, we may carry all of that in, in our mind, right? (laughs) We sit down and there it is, yes? So 
Internally, there's also forms of seclusion that are worth developing. And specifically, um, the Buddha was pointing towards seclusion from the f- what are called the five hindrances. And these five hindrances are habitual forces of the mind that pull us away from a simple awareness of what's happening in the moment, you know, from ability to just be with what's happening. They're not the focus of this talk in great detail, but so we're on the same page. The five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. So those are the five. Doubt is the fifth, yes. So there are many, many techniques for working with the hindrances. because that's often what we encounter when we first sit down. And they're not at all like bad, you know, failures of our practice. They're just, they're just forces that are in the human mind. And we can learn to work with them. But it is worth knowing that there is one underlying foundational way to undermine the hindrances. You know, without having to go into all the specific techniques, there is one... And that is living an ethical life, (laughs) actually. It happens before you even get onto the cushion. So doing the earlier things that we've talked about, being generous, um, uh, refraining from harmful behavior like killing and stealing and lying, uh, and generally wishing people well, developing an attitude of care for the people that we interact with, these things are what are going to make it possible to sit down on the cushion and not be obsessed about wanting things, not wanting things, um, being agitated and being concerned. So these create the conditions for a peaceful mind that's not going to get caught in the energy of the hindrances. So this is how the other ways of beautifying the mind that we've talked about before directly impact the ability to meditate. It's, It's definitely causal. They're, they're all related. And this is very much, of course, why the ethical steps of the path, of the Eightfold Path, which are steps three, four, and five, support the meditative development steps, which are steps six, seven, and eight. You know, that order is not arbitrary. And of course, another key basis for meditation that we always need is mindfulness, right? So the calm awareness that doesn't get wrapped up in what's happening And the great thing about mindfulness is that even if there are hindrances present, it's possible to be mindful of them. And then we are not caught at that moment. Like let's say we sit down and we're just not in that good of a mood and we have ill will. Well, if we are mindful of that and we turn the mind towards that and say, hey, what does it feel like right now to be experiencing this ill will? At that moment, you are not caught in it. So at that moment, there is meditation happening because the hindrance has been made the object of mindfulness. They too become part of the path with mindfulness. And it even says this in the, in the teachings. So for example, from the Samyutta Nikaya, even when obstacles crowd in, the path to Nibbana can be won by those who establish mindfulness and bring to perfection equipoise. So we may not not be at the point of perfect equipoise, but that just means having the ability to, to be with something and not fall into it through mindfulness. 
So we can do this in meditation. We can just notice our fear or desire or sleepiness or anger or whatever. And it works in real in the rest of life also. I love this quote from Georgia O'Keeffe who said rather expansively, I have been terrified every moment of my life and it never stopped me from doing anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> maybe maybe that's a little extreme, but you know, you can say I've been angry every moment of my meditation and it never stopped me from being mindful. <laughs> so I don't know. I th- but I think this is this is true, you know, with we can handle, this is one way to handle the hindrances, is just to be aware of them. So with the hindrances, either at bay through, you know, through being, having a genuinely calm mind at that moment without much going on, or through having the hindrances as the object of meditation at that moment, then we stand at the threshold of bhavana. You know, we're starting to develop our meditation if we're able to be in the present moment to some degree. So let's talk about how meditation develops. You know, what is it that's kind of going on in a large picture sense as we sit in practice? This is not something we need to worry ourselves with thinking about a lot, but it's worth knowing that there is, there is kind of a pattern. There's a number of ways to describe how the mind develops in meditation. One common framework, and the one that I'll use today, is called serenity and insight or shamatha and vipassana. So the, I'll talk about them more below, but um, as you can imagine, serenity means calmness, tranquility, and peacefulness. And insight is referring to seeing, you know, to a direct kind of seeing, clear seeing, direct experience, some kind of penetrating vision of something. And these two are things that have to be developed in practice as we go through this process. And they will. They will naturally develop. Uh, They're actually um, support each other. It's not like you can only do one. (laughs) But we'll talk more about how how they relate. So there are some passages where the Buddha talks about serenity and insight as a pair. He says, for example, And what is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. And what is the path leading to the unconditioned? Serenity and insight. This is called the path leading to the unconditioned. So very simply it says this is what's going to be developed to get from here to the unconditioned, to the end of suffering. So it's said that, you know, the the kind of the two root challenges in the human heart are desire and ignorance. You know, those are kind of the the main issues and serenity and insight are designed to solve those problems. (laughs) So serenity counteracts desire and insight counteracts ignorance. As you can imagine these key developments of serenity and insight give us different models for how to walk the path. So a person could develop one and then the other, or they could develop the other one and then the one, right? You could do either one first. Or they could be kind of developed um, back and forth, and there's a, that's called in tandem. And, the, and the, all of these options are noted in the text. So there's not just one way to get there. There are many, many paths to... Uh, develop these qualities in the heart. 
Actually, there's even a fourth option where a person starts with deep realization and then they have to go back and develop serenity and insight after that. Um, We won't talk about that too much. We'll focus on the more developmental models, um, the ones where you're working on serenity and insight as a process to lead to realization. So the path of serenity, if you will, it's... There are basically models of the path that emphasize serenity and models that emphasize insight, but they both kind of go together. But for clarity, we'll talk about them separately and the different kinds of happiness that come from each one. So the path of serenity is usually described as a gradual path that includes the slow refinement of first our external behavior and our mental patterns and then, you know, more into the depths of the mind and the heart. So first we develop ethical behavior, for example, and then there's other things like moderation in food, the Buddha mentioned specifically, and mindful conduct, so being aware of what we're doing as we're doing it. And then eventually, through doing this, this is, you know, through doing this, then the mind is able to sit down on the cushion and settle easily into concentration. So what makes this the path of serenity is that the practitioner moves toward absorption in an object. You know, they choose one object to meditate with and really develop that object to the exclusion of other things. They're not, the emphasis on the beginning, at the beginning is not so much on investigation and wisdom, but on really sticking with an object and developing samadhi and developing concentration and eventually developing jhana, which is very deep concentration. That's not to say that you won't have any insights. For sure, if you're going to be able to calm the mind that much and be able to really develop the jhanas, you're going to have to have a lot of insight into how the hindrances can be put at bay, basically, how they can be suppressed. So you will learn a lot about the mind, but the emphasis is on the calming in this path. Now, we don't have to wait all the way until jhana (laughs) to experience the happiness that comes from serenity and concentration, the happiness of shamatha practice. Anytime the hindrances die down in some way and we're focused deeply, we get a glimpse of the deep happiness that collectedness of mind will generate. So why is the concentrated mind happy? Because it's free from the hindrances. (laughs) How could it not feel good to have a mind that doesn't have sense, desire, ill will, restlessness, remorse, sloth and torpor, and doubt? How could that, if all of that weren't there, what would be left? (laughs) It would would have to be good, right? And so the beauty and sweetness of deep concentration bring a bliss to the mind that far surpasses any bliss from uh, sensual uh, pleasure, for example. It's just way beyond any of that. The deeply concentrated mind can be infinite, unconfined in material space and time. Actually, the Buddha experienced this kind of happiness as a child, um, and sitting under uh, a rose apple tree watching a plowing ceremony. So he was just sitting there, he was pretty young at the time, and he entered a state of relaxed awareness, where he was fully in the present moment, he wasn't daydreaming, but he had no real concerns, or distractions. And he, um, he felt this kind of deep ease. And, you know, and then he went on and his life evolved and he you know, went off and became an ascetic in the forest and he started doing all these uh, harsh ascetic practices where he sat down and tried to beat his mind and body into submission. And it didn't really work. <laughs> it didn't really work. And one day he woke up and sat up and said, 
this doesn't really work. Um, this is not leading me where I want to go. And then he, he had this memory, and he remembered sitting under the tree as a child and entering this very simple state of calm awareness and the happiness that came from that. And he said, this, this is the path. You know, this is part of the path that's going to lead to realization. And he let go of all that harshness in his practice. And he, and he sat down, he fluffed up the grass under the Bodhi tree before he sat down. There's actually, it actually says this. And, you know, he decided that he was going to pursue instead this kind of happiness that um, doesn't rely on material, doesn't have a material base, but comes directly from the heart. And that that was going to be his path to realization. So we can recall times like this in our life too. You know, we may not be the, the Buddha about, you know, so ripe that we're going to sit down and reach full awakening, or maybe we are. But we can remember times when probably when we were not all wrapped up in our adult concerns and our proliferations of this and that and the politics and all that, and we were just simply present for something in that deep, relaxed happiness that can come. Gil talks about a time when he was riding on the bus in Italy as a child, and he used to go back and forth to school. He was living there, and he loved the time in the bus. You know, it was just a time when he didn't have to do anything else, and he just sat there and watched the people, and he watched the scenery, and he kind of knew the guy who counted the fare, and so that was a time when he was. It was just simple and relaxed for him, and he's. He says that he has remembered that at times in his practice. Now, as delightful as this kind of happiness is, it's not actually the point. (laughs) Um, It's not the end, it's not the end point. The purpose of concentration is to make the mind stable enough to see clearly. So, serenity is the way that we hold the mind steady, kind of like putting a camera on a tripod instead of trying to hold it. You know, we're going to get a much steadier picture with the tripod. So that's what we're doing with the serenity practice. Now it happens that in our tradition that's taught here, uh, sometimes the path of serenity is taught, but more often we actually emphasize the path of insight. And it's possible to traverse the path mainly using insight and let the steadiness kind of develop on the side. So this path consists primarily of developing what are called the four foundations of mindfulness. And you you may have heard of those. So that's bringing our attention to the body or to feeling tone or to mental formations or to what are called the dharmas, the um, patterns of experience. We don't need to go through those in great detail. But this way of practicing, you know, this path of, of insight encourages us not just to settle on one object, but to pay attention to changing objects from the very start and to uh, notice changing sensations of breathing, for example. Notice how different feelings and states of mind are arising and passing in our experience. Notice how they shift and change, sometimes quite rapidly. Um, Through all of this, we come to get an intuitive sense of how the mind and the heart work, how they tick, if you will, as through this constant flow of experience that's impinging on our sense doors. Now for sure, if we are able to keep our mind in the present moment and watch all of this flowing through, for sure the mind will become composed and collected. You know, we will develop serenity also. 
um, samadhi sort of comes along for the ride, if you will. But the emphasis in this way of practicing is on the knowing. And this is vipassana practice. Uh, You can even look on the front page of the IMC website, and it says we teach insight or vipassana practice. (laughs) And um, we'll learn a lot doing this about cause and effect and about the main habitual tendencies of our own mind. So insight, we tend to think of insight as a noun. You know, it's, it's the thing, the thing that you see, you have an insight. But it's not actually something that we just have once. Insight is something that develops like everything else. Um, there is indeed a moment, there will be moments or short periods of time where the veils part and we see either very deeply, more deeply than we ever saw before or more broadly than we ever saw before. So kind of a breadth or a depth will come and as at the, at the moment or the time of insight, kind of like getting to the top of the mountain and suddenly having a vista that we didn't have before of the whole valley before, before us. But actually, that's not the end. You know, we don't just hang around up there. Um, we come down <laughs> from the mountain. And, you know, of course, now once we've seen that, once we've been to the top and seen that vista, we know something that people who stayed down below don't know, right? So it's not like it didn't happen. But we may behave differently when we get to the bottom. It's not, you know, we're going to come back and be there and we may, we may be doing something different. And in the meantime, that vision that we had is settling into our bones, integrating into our being and how we are. This is the development of insight. That's how it works. So insight means understanding how things come to be, and in particular how suffering arises and how it disbands. And when the mind can see this clearly, it feels the happiness of deep understanding and satisfaction and sometimes power and strength come along with that, these feelings of confidence. Insight cuts through the defilements of the mind, sometimes permanently. And so it's a powerful experience that changes the mind itself. And one thing that it does (laughs) is it makes the mind more susceptible to happiness. (laughs) So having insights makes us more, is what increases our capacity for happiness. We get a good deal on this path. (laughs) The more we do it, the happier we can become. So even simple insights, though, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like you've got to get all the, you do this hard labor to get to the very top of the mountain, and that's all that matters. Even simple insights have very profound results. So for me, for example, when I started practicing, I was sitting with a lot of bodily pain. I had kind of a health challenge at the time, and it was an important practice for me to develop, to sort of investigate this pain. That was kind of what I needed to do first when I sat down with mindfulness. And over time, I learned um, that the pain actually wasn't that solid. You know, I thought it was just this wall that I was feeling. But as I was able to be with it long enough to see it more, more clearly, I could see that it wasn't continual. It actually had little gaps. <laughs> And it actually consisted of very rapid, short sensations. Um, and that it changed and shifted. It wasn't really that solid. It moved around a little bit. It was more and then less. And, you know, it was still there, <laughs> for sure. But 
once I could see this kind of changing nature of it, I, once I'd seen that, I could no longer see it as completely solid. I just couldn't believe in it in that way anymore. You know, once you've seen how the magic trick works, then you don't, you don't believe it in the same way. Um, it might still, it's still there, it's still happening, but you know, I could never be quite so caught in it again. So there was a lot less suffering, you know, right there from, from the very beginning in practice, starting to see it in a different way. So both the path of serenity and the path of insight, you know, whichever one you're emphasizing, the calmness or the knowing, both of them lead to a particular type of insight called liberating insight. Um, insight in the end is what's going to do the trick. Okay, serenity itself doesn't liberate um, on its own, but it, it creates the conditions for the mind to have deeper insights. So either way, you're going to get to to a place where we're having insight into particular aspects of reality that are called the three characteristics. That's how we talk about it in this tradition, is that there's, that there's impermanence, or anicca, there's unsatisfactoriness, or dukkha, and there's not-self, you know, impersonality, or anatta. And insights into these are what help the mind really uproot the deeper causes of suffering, the deeper ways that we grasp onto wanting things, wanting identities, wanting things to be a certain way, wanting to be a certain kind of person. So there's definitely happiness in understanding things more deeply, you know, the happiness of, of the insight that I talked about. But there's a slight shift we can make that makes an important difference. We can tune into feeling the peace that happens when grasping or wanting ends. And that's what might, we might call the happiness of peace. So we can learn to focus not on the object of what we want, whether that's a thing or an experience or an identity, how we want to be, um, but instead turn the mind back and focus on that wanting itself, that grasping after a certain thing, Instead of looking at the thing, we look at what is this grasping like? And grasping never lasts forever. You know, if you try to clench your fist and hold it there, it's not gonna, you're not going to be able to do it forever. <laughs> Eventually, it has to let go. And so we can watch when grasping ends. And at that moment, that's an important moment because we feel that there's a moment of peace when the hand opens and or the mind opens or the mind releases something. And that is something that we can develop also, seeing that. So this is not something obscure, actually. We can do it in our daily life. Um, it's called riding out a desire. And, you know, anytime you have a desire, there are, of course, healthy desires that we should fulfill. Like, it's a good idea to go to the bathroom when you have to. <laughs> you know, it's a good idea to eat now and then. Um, but for example, suppose you have the desire for a snack when you're not really hungry. Uh, you don't really need the food, but it's a distraction or it's you know something else, a habit in some way. Most of us, the problem is not that we have an extreme lack of food. Um, so it's, we have this desire, though, for food. And so it can be interesting to watch. Just watch that. And, you know, it may be a little challenging to be with it and not fulfill it, but it will eventually fade 
and we can experience the peace of no longer having that want if we notice, if we notice that moment. So we may begin to notice that actually even when we satisfy a desire, like we actually do get something that we want, part of what we're feeling is not the happiness of getting it, but the happiness that comes because that desire is no longer there, right? If you get it, the desire ends also. <laughs> but the, the Buddha claims, that, and we can test this in our own experience, that the more important feeling that's happening there is the feeling of the end of the desire. And, you know, this is not to be believed, it's to be tested. But we can, we can appreciate this and notice it. We can appreciate the peace that comes from the end of clinging, the end of wanting. And this gives genuine insight into the Four Noble Truths, which say that the cause of suffering, the actual cause of suffering, is the grasping, um, and not the lack of the object. So it's almost too simple, right? <laughs> it sounds like so underwhelming. And, um, but basically, the end of greed, the end of hatred, and the end of delusion, that is Nibbana. You know, that is the peace of liberation. And very rarely, um, mostly it's Nibbana is characterized in that kind of negative way. It's the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Very rarely did the Buddha try to say exactly what Nibbana is, at least in these early teachings of the Buddha. Um, but on one occasion, at least one occasion, he did. Um, he did. And what did he refer to Nibbana as? A form of happiness. Yeah? So it says, Health is the greatest possession contentment the foremost wealth, trust the foremost kinship, nibbana the foremost happiness. So the happiness of peace is unsurpassed by any other, even the happiness of deep concentration, even the happiness of deep insight. You know, this happiness of not having that, uh, that wanting, that thirst, that unsatisfying feeling that things aren't quite right, if that were just to end, that would be the deepest happiness. And I love that it sounds simple, because it is simple, and it's doable, it makes it doable. It may take a while, it's a path, because we have a lot of habits toward wanting things and wanting to be things. But I love that in the end, it's this very simple human thing. It's not even a thing. <laughs> it's so simple, it's not even a thing. So this is, this is the direction that the path takes us, is toward allowing all suffering to end, allowing all neediness, graspiness, drivenness to end. And then, you can imagine, right? Then everything is available and open, free and liberated. So we've learned about higher and higher forms of happiness, you know, sense pleasure, which is a form of happiness. It's the happiness of merit, as we talked about in the first two talks. The happiness of concentration, the deep happiness of being able to collect the mind, free from the hindrances at last. 
the happiness of insight, of deeply knowing how phenomena arise and cease. So we're not fooled. We're not fooled so easily. We get that strength of mind. And then Nibbana, the peace of cessation. So as you can imagine, a mind that has no greed, hatred, or delusion, I don't know what it looks like necessarily, but I think it would look very beautiful. (laughs) Actually, the Buddha called such a mind luminous. He said luminous is the mind in the state of highest happiness. So through this practice of meditation, we can actually end the forces that are unwholesome, that make the mind tinged in certain ways. We can end them completely. It's a process that happens over time, and you know it's okay that we're not there at this moment. But it's really useful to hear things like this, to hear where it goes. We have to hear that. So please don't forget that your heart and mind are already beautiful. <laughs> they're, um, they're like gold that may have a few impurities left, but even in gold that has some impurities, all the pure gold is already there, right? It's just a matter of bringing it out. And bringing it out is from things like practicing generosity, goodwill, ethical behavior, and meditation. So more and more we come to have this luminous mind and then it can shine out on the world and be of benefit to everyone. So thank you. <laughs>